Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from Clean Cuts Miles Davis Studio at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. If you work in an organization, whether it's a company, a nonprofit, a school district, you've seen this movie before. Someone or someplace in your organization is doing amazing things, productive and disruptive, innovative and inspiring. And yet, the awesomeness doesn't spread. The principles and practices just sit there and never leap from the few to the many. It's the problem of scale. It's one of the most vexing problems in organizations, and nobody, it seems, has ever fashioned a comprehensive approach to dealing with it. Until now. With us here on today's episode are two smart guys who've written one great book. The book is Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. It will be, mark my words, one of the biggest business books of 2014. The authors are here with us. They are Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao. Some quick introductions of these two gentlemen. Bob Sutton is a professor of management science and engineering at Stanford and a co-founder of Stanford's D-School. He's one of those academics with a knack for translating deep research into accessible prose that's actually understandable to civilians, which he's done in an array of best-selling books, Weird Ideas That Work, The Knowing-Doing Gap, uh, one of my favorites, Good Boss, Bad Boss, and the classic, The No-Asshole Rule, which remains my wife's Favorite business book of all time, beating out <laughs> even those written by her beloved husband. Uh, his co-conspirator on the new book is another Stanford professor, Huggy Rao, who teaches organizational behavior at the Stanford B School. Huggy's work uses both management and sociology, and we're going to hear a little bit more about sociology in our conversation, to understand how organizations change. He's won a raft of awards for his research. It's a pleasure to have them both on the program. Bob and Huggy, welcome to Office Hours. It's a delight to be here, Dan. Thank you, Fantastic. Huggy. Fantastic. All right. So um, you guys have a nice way of describing scale. That's a, uh, you know, to me, that's a bit of a wonky term. You call it, and I think it's a lovely phrase. It's really, really, the clarity of it is fantastic. You call it the problem of more. Right. What is the problem of more and why does it matter? Well, for us, the problem of more is the challenge of you've got a little bit of goodness. You want to spend it to spread it to more people, more places, uh, uh, more teams. And in the process, um, a bunch of challenges come up, a bunch of good things happen and some predictable bad things happen. So that's what it is from the challenge of spreading it from the few to the more, if you will. Right. So give us an example of, you know, in, in, in more concrete terms, you know, what, what's a kind of scale problem that organizations that you've studied have faced? The organizations we've studied, Dan, face a spectrum of challenges. If you're a small organization, you actually want to grow rapidly and acquire a footprint. Your challenge is you want to acquire the footprint, but you don't want to lose the mindset. Right. If you're a large organization, 
you already have scale, but the problem is you have many bad behaviors that you need to either contain or eliminate before you get to the good stuff. Perhaps I can illustrate it with a brief example. Yeah. As one venture capitalist told us, think of simply scaling from beach volleyball to regular volleyball. In beach volleyball, you've got two people. There are no coaches. There are no substitutes. We're very clear of what to do, namely to keep the ball in the air and make sure it doesn't touch the sand. The moment you go from beach volleyball to regular volleyball, two to six, all of a sudden you've got specialization. You've got substitutes. You've got uh, coaches. Now suppose you're on the opposing side, Dan, and you serve and Bob receives the serve and gives it to me uh, to strike. I arc into the air and I smash it into the net. The interesting question is, whose fault was that? Was it Bob? Was it me? Or was your serve simply unplayable? As you can see, when you go from two to six, we just have the problem of opacity. And if you go from six to 60 to 600 and so on. Okay, so let me let me pick up on that because I think it goes. You guys have outlined seven principles, seven essentially scaling mantras, some ways to deal with this. Uh, some really really good case studies, some really really interesting examples. One of your first, which Huggy uh, mentioned, is the idea of that scaling, that is going from the few to the many, that so addressing this problem of more, is a mindset. Uh, what do you mean by that? And I, I thought I was very uh, taken by the example of how Facebook deals with this. So, so the interesting thing, in it, and also, by the way, the 10th anniversary of Facebook is, a sa is the same day this will play on Tuesday the 4th. So it's sort of appropriate. Um, and Facebook is interesting because we know how they have grown to um, over a billion users now. But uh, we've tracked them and involved with them um, since about 2006, especially the engineering side of the house. And one thing that you got to give Zuckerberg and other folks like Chris Cox, who's head of product, credit for is they have doubled down more and more intensely as they brought more people aboard to make sure that, um, for example, with new engineers, they spend a full six weeks essentially having them go through a training process where instead of talking about it, they work on 10 or 12 different projects and live the move fast and break things mindset. And other elements like they learn the way the whole code base works or much of it as a result. They learn the notion that any job they have is temporary. A really important set of assumptions. But, but another thing about the mindset we like to emphasize is that every organization um, needs its own special set of beliefs about the way we put it, uh, of things that are sacred and taboo. So move fast and break things works great. Um, works great for um, if you're um, at Facebook and making little mistakes isn't so bad, but if you're designing software for nuclear submarines, right. it's not a very um, good thing to do because you'll blow things up literally. Right. Well, let's go, let's go back to that because I think it's interesting and I think it touches on, I hinted at this a little bit, that, is, that when you're talking about organizations, inherently you're talking at some level about sociology, you're talking about anthropology and, and you mentioned these concepts of sacred and, and taboo are, uh -huh. are are those um, the organizations that are able to scale fast the organizations that are able to take what's working in one place and make it work other places do they make those kinds of principles those kinds of mindsets do they make it explicit or is it something that people kind of know intuitively or is it something that is explicitly announced that's a great uh question, Dan. 
the thing that we have been struck by is excellent organizations certainly make the mindset explicit. But what is striking is how they go about making those things explicit. For us, the big difference is excellent organizations use verbs or adverbs to make the mindset explicit. Continuing on with the Facebook example, Facebook says, be bold, be quick, make an impact, for example. By contrast, ineffective organizations use nouns. The problem with nouns is nouns are abstract. Let me give you an example. Yeah. You know, in one organization, when I said, what's, ask the executives, what's, your, what's part of your mindset? They said ingenuity. And I said, what is ingenuity? It took 20 seconds for the executive to answer. And my poser to the executive was, how many of your 40,000 employees are going to take 20 seconds to figure yeah. that out? Yeah. I mean, I think, this is a fasc- I think this is a fascinating idea. And it goes, I mean, I, I, there's so many interesting things in this book. We tend to think that, that, that scale, uh, by its very nature, we, we th- it, it seems to be kind of an engineering problem. And it's sort of how do you build something and make it bigger? But, but mm-hmm. your first principle is that it is actually a way of thinking. And that way of thinking right. has it um, uh, kind of an organic quality to it. Are there other examples of... of these explicit mindsets that have been uh, that have been effective, the way that companies have explicitly deployed verbs to get people understanding what the company's about. Well, um, one that I would think, although I always get my nouns and verbs uh, messed up, is let's take a scared secret at Apple. I mean, everybody understands that absolutely completely, and and in contrast, what you have. Let's take Mozilla, one of the the. the folks who bring us Firefox, open source software, there it's the exact opposite, that um, secrecy is viewed as sort of an anathema. Yeah. And, um, and the idea of being um, open is, is, is what's sacred to them. So, so there, there's, there's this notion that people have pretty clear beliefs about what counts. Uh, just to give you a little example, sometimes these are big things, other times they're little things. Um, one of the, the guys who we interviewed a lot, really interesting fellow, Named uh, Chris Fry, who is uh, he's now head of uh, engineering at Twitter. And it, for those of us on Twitter, we've noticed the fail whale has kind of gone away. So he's one of the guys responsible for that. And and uh, one thing Chris figured out when he first got there was uh, they weren't paying much attention at meetings, the engineers. So what he does is he collects their cell phones at the beginning of the meeting. Interesting. So they actually listen. And 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 to us, that's not like a huge norm. Um, yeah. But it sort of gets to the notion that when we're together, we actually have to pay attention to one another, not just um, be there for FaceTime. Yeah, yeah. I think it's such a I, – I mean, I've, I've really been thinking a lot about this. I mean, again, we're only at scaling mantra one, and and, right. and I just think it's a, a really, really huge insight. It changed the way that I even think about what scale is because, again, I think even the metaphor of scale, as I mentioned before, is about kind of building. It's sort of a you know civil engineering challenge. Right. And, 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 and and it's not. It's a it's a cultural, sociological, anthropological challenge. And if it, and if you get that part right, uh, some of the engineering side falls into place. Let's go to another one that's that again sure. is a little bit sort of non-engineering. And you, you talk about the importance of engaging all the senses, all the senses. Uh, tell me what you mean by that. Uh, I think Starbucks might be an example that uh, Starbucks is an example you've used. 
So uh, the, the, the premise there, Dan, is that most of us consider employees within, a, within an organization to have the ability to read and the ability to hear. But we, of course, have the ability to taste, uh, touch, and smell. And the point is, all of these senses can be allies of any executive seeking to scale. So uh, let me give you an example. If you go to Procter & Gamble, for instance, to their innovation uh, facility, it's interesting they actually call it the innovation gym. Uh, in instantly you're signaling to people, look, it's all about exercising different muscles. The layout is such that it's flexible. It's non-hierarchical. So spatial cues can be very, very powerful. Um, similarly, visual cues can be very, very powerful. Um, uh, in fact, uh, there's this uh, lovely study that was done in the Netherlands and what they show is the best way to reduce litter on trains is not to have guards, very expensive, not to have video cameras to monitor and find violators because those cameras can be vandalized. Instead, they found the best way to reduce litter was to spray citrus scent, for mm. example. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let, let me jump yeah. in on the Starbucks example because um, a lot of the times when an organization is trying to spread and sustain a set of beliefs and behaviors, um, the mindset, um, there's this challenge that if people start seeing inconsistencies, um, problems happen because people don't quite get the mindset. And, um, and the problem that Starbucks had, and they've openly talked about this, Howard Schultz has written about this um, openly, is that, is that um, they stopped grinding coffee, which led to two problems. You didn't hear the grinding anymore, and you didn't hear, and when you go to Starbucks, you don't have the smell of fresh ground coffee, and that starts causing problems where, where it's literally, in the words that Howard Schultz describes is, we've watered down mm. the Starbucks experience mm. because it all doesn't quite fit together. And uh, we also did um, a bit of work with Karin Krikorian, who is uh, head of customer experience research at Disney. And Karin says, the thing that they're always looking for at Disney, and I love this expression, are dissonant details. Hmm. Things that clash with the kind of the mindset that we want to sort of spread for both employees and customers. So I, I found the idea of dissonant details really powerful, but is there an explicit way to, to surface those kinds of things? I mean, do you enlist someone in your organization to be the, the triple D, the dissonant uh, details detective? I love the phrase dissonant details detective. I think here the easiest allies I would uh, think would be one's own customers, uh, one's own employees too. But the advantage of enlisting the customers is you actually get a quick and fresh perspective on what those dissonant uh, details are. Uh, they don't have any prejudgments. They take fewer things for granted. Uh, and so getting the customers involved in the process would be very useful. The other thing is to get the employees themselves to be customers. That's another way in which you get at the dissonant detail. Yeah, we're talking to uh, Huggy Rao and Bob Sutton. They're the authors of Scaling Up Excellent. Uh, terrific new book. Uh, let's go uh, to some of these other, let's go to some of these other principles. There, 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 there are a lot of things that I find interesting here. One of them, I just happen to like the word. You, you, you caution us to fear the clusterfuck. What does that mean? 
Well, the clusterfuck means that our editor wanted us to censor that other <laughs> word too. But um, but but what that means is that is that when we looked at cases, and we the main example we use actually is a bad IT rollout at our own university, Stanford. When you looked at cases of bad scaling, um, the, the reason we came up with this word clusterfug in addition to the fact it's memorable is it kind of reminds us of the, uh, of the classic military um, use of the word. And essentially there's situations where because senior people get in a situation where they push something down people's throat, mm. um, it, it goes awry because of the three eyes: illusion, um, impatience, and incompetence. And when you get the three of those things rolled together, and the incompetence becomes contagious because in a, in a, in a great clusterfug, a bad IT rollout, uh, I hate to say it, but Obamacare was a great example, sure. um, it turns the people who are competent human beings incompetent. Mm. So, so for us, that's why we talk about fearing the clusterfug. And, and if you go back to a lot of the Conrad and Traversky and, uh, and you know, behavioral economics kind of stuff, we human beings have this fantastic... Um, ability to delude ourselves, um, and it can get us in incredible trouble. And um, when we look at people who are great at scaling, let's take our buddy David Kelly from IDEO. Sure. Um, and, um, and, and then I also think of a woman named Louise Lang who did um, one of the best IT rollouts at Kaiser Permanente I've ever seen. They're constantly worried about what's going to go wrong um, and how they're going to wade through the mess as opposed to pounding their chest about how great their implementation is. So what is so what is this is I mean this is this is important because I think it, you look at those those that that terrible trio of illusion uh, incompetence and impatience and I think that everybody who's worked in an organization knows instantly what you're talking about. But what what are the remedies? Is there a clusterfuck vaccine? Is there <laughs> some kind of best practices? Is there a way to wash your hands frequently to avoid getting the clusterfuck contagion? Great uh, question again, Dan. Our recommendation in the book is the reason why cluster fugs occur is because of silence in an organization. Because a lot of things are unsaid. That's why you actually have illusions that persist. That's why impatience thrives. That's why incompetence endures. And one of the things we recommend in the book is before you embark on any scaling endeavor, d- engage in a pre-mortem. Oh, which yeah. Is the opposite of a post-mortem. I, I, I unpack that more because I have become a fervent believer in pre-mortems. But why don't you walk us through? This is an idea from originally from uh, Gary Klein. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So, so get, walk us through that because I think this is just personally in my own work. I've been, I've start, I started using premortems and they're they're game changers. But tell us about that and how. Tell us about how it works and why it's useful. Yeah. So um, the reason it's uh, the, the the problem in organizations is when you get diverse people. Our hope is they each contribute their unique insights, so that when we pull them, we can do better. But the tragedy is we often recirculate common knowledge. When we talk about what's common amongst ourselves, the unique things that I have, I might actually think they're either inappropriate or irrelevant. I don't even know that they're unique because I don't know what you have. But the more we all listen to a bunch of things being spoken, we conclude they're important and we suppress whatever it is that we know. And the pre-mortem idea is an interesting one because the way at least Bob and I talk about uh, the pre-mortem idea in our book is 
take a group of people, randomly put them into two conditions, one the failure condition, the other the success condition. And suppose your organization was seeking to um, expand operations, open new factories or whatever. Um, you, what you ask the people in the failure condition is you tell them, imagine it's the 30th of uh, January 2015, you've actually opened this new factory or establishment, it's turned into a spectacular failure, employees are leaving, customers are angry, and you actually have a story in Business Week or the Wall Street huh. Journal saying, your firm is going down the tubes. And what you ask these people to do is write a story of how that happened. It's important that it be a story and not a list. Mm. Likewise, for those in the success condition, you actually paint a success scenario. Imagine you've opened the office or factory, uh, you know, customers love it, employees are very productive, they're very happy. How did that happen? And again, you ask people to write a story and you give them the cue of a business week or Fortune or Wall Street Journal article. And what people then do is they have to write these stories independently and secondly, anonymously. And it would be great if they sent it to a third party uh, and then you can pull these things together and then you can actually do very quick debugging. In fact, the question Bob and I have been wondering is, as we read about Sochi, the Olympics in uh, Russia, we've been kind of wondering, have, did they actually think of a pre-mortem? Did they do a pre-mortem? Right. That's right. I'm going to guess the answer to that is no. Is you're looking back yeah. from the future yeah. rather than imagining what the future was, was like. And when we know we have succeeded or failed, it turns out that we're much better at analyzing what happened. And, and it's funny because Huggy and I have done this with a bunch of folks around Stanford, including our development office, and said to them, okay, it's a year from now. You've had a great um, development effort. What happened? You've had a terrible one. What happened? It was pretty interesting the degree to which they get into it. It's kind of a different way of thinking. I think it's a great way of thinking. And my own experience has been that the failure condition is more powerful. Yes. Um, yes. And that's that, what and, and that what's, what's, what I've seen, again, at a much smaller level than, than you guys, I mean, literally doing it in my own work and doing it. Um, I've started doing this with a few nonprofits uh, that, I, that, I, that, I, that I work with in a volunteer basis on the board is that if you ask people, it's a year from now, and this has been an abject failure, what went wrong? My experience has been, people know immediately. Right. Um, and and you, what you can do is you can reverse engineer and begin to debug it. I think it's a powerful, I think it's a powerful concept. I think it also links to a lot, some of your other uh, mantras, the, the mantra of linking short-term realities to long-term dreams in particular, because what I found at sort of at the individual level on postmortems is that a lot of the solutions to the failure end up being basically making things explicit on one's calendar and making them sacrosanct on one's calendar. So the short-term reality of what you do on Tuesday links very much to what you want to accomplish a year from now. Uh, so it's, go ahead, yeah. Let me comment. So, so that is, and it's interesting that uh, the people who knew Steve Jobs the best said that's what his genius was. He would understand um, how little things now had a big effect later on in which things to pay attention to and which to ignore. But to give you another example, one of our favorite cases in the book is an organization, for-profit organization called Bridge International Academies, which is now up to almost 200 uh, 
um, very standardized schools in Africa, uh, funded by local venture capitalists here. You, you, you pay $5 a month to send your very poor kid in Africa to school, and the educational outcomes look quite good. But when they started, Shannon May, one of the founders, um, when they started with the very first school, what they did was, even though they said one school, they said, we have to run the school um, to do things that will work with 25 or 50 schools. So we're not going to be in the classroom. We're going to have things done over the web. We're going to have parents pay electronically with their cell phones. These are you know, very poor people in Africa. And um, they had standardized enough materials that they could replicate it somewhere else. And that ability to sort of link what's happening now with the future we want to live is to me one of the real hallmarks and actually one of the difficult things. There's a lot of evidence because um, it turns out that when human beings look really far ahead, we tend to be overly optimistic. Right. And when we look really close up, we tend to just focus on what we can get done today. And, and the magic, and this is what Jobs was really quite famous for, was understanding how what you're doing now has all these sort of ripple effects. And just to give you a quick story, uh, it, it's apocryphal, but I think that it's true. One of my um, students told me how her friend got fired from the very first Apple store um, because she bought really cheap bags. Jobs fired her himself, of course. And, and the reason he got so pissed off was in his mind was people walking out after those expensive purchases we make, um, having their product in a crappy bag. And if you go to Danny Kahneman stuff, the way things end are really an important Absolutely. part of the experience. But he saw the long-term cost of that, whereas most places I buy stuff just give me a crappy bag. Right, right. Is there a way to – I think that's a powerful idea, this, this – I mean, it's, it's, it makes perfect sense that, that small – you know, to be glib about it, small things make a, make a big difference. But is there a way to um, uh, bring that principle in more systematically into one's work? Is there some kind of best practice or um, or a role with inside of a company to make sure that that's going on? One of the things we talk about is when you want to link the short term with the long term, the most important thing is do not increase cognitive load. Right, right. Very, uh, very quickly, people develop lists of to do's. Um, you know, they increase monitoring, they increase approvals, they increase reviews. And what we sort of argue is all of these things increase cognitive load and they erode willpower. And if you erode willpower, accountability diminishes because excellence for us is people doing the right thing even when nobody's watching over uh, them or looking over their shoulder. Um, and which is why the key thing, uh, the best practice, if you will, we recommend is Think of scaling up, uh, scaling up excellence as a subtraction exercise, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not an addition exercise. Right, right. I think that's a, I think that's a, I think that's a good uh, approach. I mean, uh, there's, there's a, there's there are a few people. Um, Tom Peters has talked about this. Jim Collins has talked about this. This idea of coming up with a, not only a to-do list but a to-don't list, a so, stop yeah. doing list. Yeah. Um, so, so, so let, let me comment on that because yeah. I mean we're we're all into subtraction and. And especially with scaling, there's always a big issue where what used to work for you before um, is not going to get work in the future. Like uh, the, one of the examples we used is uh, Monday morning meetings at IDEO worked great with 60, not with uh, um, 120 people. But but one of the things that I worry about with the simplicity movement, and, and Huggy and I have written about this a lot, yeah. is, is there's this notion that you should just take away absolutely everything. 
But as organizations and projects get more complex, the fact is that we do need process, we do need hierarchy, we do need more specialized roles. So for us, it's sort of this tug of war in some ways that as you add, you've got to keep subtracting. But if you if you only do subtraction, it's it's a little bit oversimplified because there's all the stuff you actually need. And one of the ones that I've actually taken some grief on the web for recently is by simply saying, sorry, folks, as organizations get higher, get larger, you're going to need more hierarchy. And, and I can't find any um, evidence to the contrary of that. But uh, so yeah, so it's, a, it's a great I encourage listeners to uh to go to their favorite search engine and and and, and uh, search for Bob Sutton and hierarchy and uh, he's he has he has it's a great piece it's and he but he has received the wrath of the holacracy crowd for that one. Well, that, that, actually, initially, but then we kind of made up because we kind of realized that that we weren't really talking about a different thing. All I said is you need some kind of hierarchy, not that more hierarchy is better. Right. So let's. Um, <laughs> what I want to do here uh, to shift gears just a little bit. There's so much more that I want to get to. There, there are two. Sure. There are two things in particular, two substantive things that I want to uh, thematic things that I want to get to, and I want to make sure our listeners um, get a taste of those. But first, let's let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, our listeners are always interested in how people came to do what they're doing. So, I mean, Huggy, like. How did you end up at Stanford researching organizational change? So uh, I, was, I used to be at the Kellogg School. Uh, Take us and, back even uh, further than that. I mean, when you were a little boy, were you wondering, hmm, what are the dynamics of organization while other kids are playing with blocks and riding bicycles? Are you saying, hmm, why is this store not working f- properly? A lot of my childhood was uh, devoted to playing sports, uh, cricket uh, in particular in India. And the cricket team requires not just uh, 11 people, but 16 people. Uh-huh. You know, uh, recruiting those 16 people, making sure uh, you played in the league matches, all of that, you're constantly thinking of questions of organization. Um, similarly, in our school, uh, so many activities, all of which required organization. And the thing that sort of stood out to me was, how do these things work? What is it that we can do to make them better? Um, And uh, when I finished business school, I realized this even more vividly, uh, in India, that is. And then I came to the United States to do my PhD, and I got very interested in how organizations work again. I was particularly interested in uh, mutual savings and loan associations Hmm. and stock savings and loan associations. And the astonishing thing I found was... uh, these mutual savings associations worked well when they were very embedded in a community. So if you were the manager, you got a big office, everybody spoke about it in the bar, so you couldn't do anything bad. Uh, But when you took those same organizations and put them in Nevada and Arizona, where people were strangers to one another, it was a recipe ripe for malfeasance. Interesting. So... Uh, I've always been interested in organizations, and when I came to Stanford, it so happened Bob and I lived close to each other. We like to drink wine together, <laughs> and we thought, let's actually invent more reasons to drink wines, and the best thing we thought was to get on as many adventures together as we could, and the book was the outcome of one such adventure. Uh, I, want, I want to c- come to that in a moment. So, so Bob, I mean, I find it's interesting that, that you're in, if I'm not mistaken, you're in the engineering department at, at Stanford, but you're not trained as an engineer. No, no, I'm an organizational psychologist from the University of Michigan. All my degrees are in Michigan. 
uh, I mean, are in psychology. Um, well, and Huggy, what Huggy and I really are, although we're in kind of different parts of the same field, we're both, he's more of a, a sociologist, although he's a pretty good psychologist, and I'm more of a psychologist. So we're kind of in the same field. Um, I could go into the Stanford reasons. I, a lot of it just has to do with the, the economics that uh, the business school doesn't um, have an undergraduate program or let in many other folks. The largest major at Stanford is engineering, and gee, those engineers need a little uh, management education. Oh, yeah. Boom, that's why I exist. Excellent, so. excellent. So tell me how you guys work together. This was this was not a book that you guys hacked out in six months. This was a long, <laughs> no, no, this was a a long-term I'll... project. G- g- give me the give me the creation myth around that project, oh, and also tell us tell us how um, you guys worked together. Well, let me do the quick creation myth, but the way we worked together was, uh, I feel like I'm married to him. But anyways, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the creation myth, and I, and I actually think there's two parts of it. One we emphasize, the other one I'll talk about here as well. First of all, Huggy and I started um, what was turned out to be the, the first executive program um, in the Stanford Design School, which was, which was in the mornings, they would do traditional executive ed, in the afternoons, We'd work with the D-School folks and we'd send them out to uh, do things like try to make the gas station experience better. So Mm. we're trying to teach innovation and everybody keeps coming up to us. This is 2006 and saying, gee, we got a little innovation in our organization. How do we get more? How do we scale it? And we kind of look at each other and give them these really crappy answers. So so that was part one of the creation myth, myth, which is true. And then part two, which which I think should be emphasized more is right after Huggy got to Stanford, um, uh, right around then, he did an amazing case of something called the 100,000 Lives Campaign, um, which, which was uh, an effort that was successful to spread good, life-saving, simple practices from hospitals that have them to those that don't, ran by a small nonprofit called the Institute for Health Improvement um, it, uh, out of Boston. And, and so looking at that process by which literally good, life-saving practices spread from the, where they were to where they weren't, that also got us going on the process. In terms of how we work together, I, I think that we did case studies, we talked constantly, we revised things a thousand times. And I'll add one thing that I think Huggy should probably jump in here. Um, one of the things I learned in this, pro- in, this, in this project, and this is my sixth business book, is we realized to get stuff that actually felt real to people who are in the thick of scaling is we kept pulling them in the tent more and more. People mm. like uh, John Lilly, I've mentioned, there's a woman named Bonnie Simi from, um, from JetBlue, to not, to not just interview them once, but to show them what we write, wrote over and over again and ask us, is this right? Are our principles right? Interesting. So in some ways, this book felt much more like a social process than us hiding and just writing and presenting the truth to the world. That's that's so to jump yeah, in that, that's it. is that different from the way you've done it in the past? I mean, have you shown uh, your sources the especially the, in magnitude? Yeah, I mean, the, the, so people like John Lilly or, or Bonnie Simi or a woman named Claudia Kachka from Procter and Gamble, the, the, the intensity which we would both show them what we wrote about them and go multiple iterations and then show all of. I think what did we do? A hundred presentations to different groups to. To show them our emergency, emerging principles, everything from people who ran large prisons to to state judges to you know your typical business folks at Google, and say, is this right? What do we? What's wrong here? And so, so it just felt like this process. It, it felt more like it took a village than any book I've ever been involved in. Yeah, and that's, that, that's, fa- that's fascinating. Did you guys, um, you know, assign each other chapters and then edit it, or how did how did the actual writing of it work? Talk about that, Huggy, because so I, you know. I'm, um, we take the lead on different chapters. Uh, 
and we take the lead on chapters we each uh, love. Uh, so Bob, for example, uh, you know, wanted to, was so struck by this idea of bad is stronger than yes. good. And he really wanted to do the first draft. I was uh, uh, very interested uh, in the connect and cascade chapter. Mm. Um, so I took the first stab at that. But the, the for me, the most striking thing about how we work together is when we talked the first iteration of the program that Bob mentioned in 2006, the question an executive asked was, how do you scale this? And Bob gave an answer, I gave an answer, at the end, both of us debriefed, and we concluded our answers were truly sad. <laughs> they weren't good enough. Uh -huh. And, you know, we looked at each other and said, what do we do? And then we said, wait a minute. When we don't know about something, how do we actually quickly get up to speed? And the first thing we did in the best spirit of being professors was to actually offer a course. Mm. Because when you offer a course, you're immediately forced to read up, you're curious, you're motivated. And we offered a course on scaling up excellence to engineering students and MBA students. And we gave them a very difficult problem on the Stanford campus. We randomly assigned dorms and sports teams to student groups. And their project was can you increase the usage of helmets by bicyclists on the Stanford campus? This is such a great example. I, I actually had this. I wanted to ask you guys about this, so I'm glad that you brought it up. I love this example because I think it illustrates these principles in a way that's not about Procter & Gamble or Kaiser right. Permanente or something like that. Tell us more about um, uh, bicycle helmets well, on the well, Stanford there, campus. There was lots of examples, and it was great because so, so in the classroom, we've got the MBAs, the folks in the D school, and we've got Ariane Miscott, who's the Stanford bicycle coordinator, who's helping us. That so was great sort of team effort. But our, our favorite example was the Stanford soccer team. And so our, our little group went to, and tried to convince them using facts that they should wear bicycle helmets because it was so dangerous, blah, 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 no effect. So they get this idea, they go out and they buy watermelons, they smash broken watermelons all over the practice field. They put little tags on their bicycles, pictures of somebody lying next to a, a, a smashed bicycle, a bicycle sort of prone with a smashed watermelon next to their head. And they get sort of the, the emotion going and they give them watermelons, they throw watermelons at one another. So they, they get this sort of, we call it the hot cause, the emotions going. Yep. And then they start taking down the road to more tangible actions. And, and this notion, and, and my wife was now CEO of the Girl Scouts of uh, Northern California, uses this all the time, which is that you do the hot cause and you do the cool solutions. And it's the one-two punch. If you just get people all emotionally aroused, especially proud and anger, and they have nowhere to go, that doesn't have any impact. If you just make a rational argument, it doesn't have a ration, it doesn't really have an impact on human beings either. So it's this one-two punch, hot cause, cool solution. Huggy did some brilliant stuff um, a few years back on the rise of the craft beer industry. Mm. And what they did, kind of a la Steve Jobs, was they made Corona and Budweiser the enemy. You know, watery, flat, boring beer, which is not a very nasty enemy. It's just beer, right? <laughs> but they get all riled up emotionally. Uh -huh. And that would lead to sort of the cool solutions of them improving their processes. Yeah, yeah. That's hot a, cause, cool solutions. Yeah, I, I, love, I, I love the phrase, uh, hot causes, cool solutions. I think it's a really great way of looking at it. We're going we're gonna to need to wrap up here in a few minutes. Let me sure. – um, I want to bring out one other issue here. Huggy mentioned it um, I think it's a powerful concept. I think people have an intuitive sense of it, but it's not, they're not aware of it enough, which is the principle that bad is stronger than good. Uh, what do you mean by that? And give us an example. Um, 
what we mean by that is the journey to excellence is necessarily from bad to great. Mm. And the reason is when there's bad, good cannot survive. Bad crushes good. Uh, and this is because of the negativity bias that has been shown in four decades or five decades of psychological research. Uh, you ask people what are their most powerful memories, bad memories surge to the forefront. Mm. What are the most influential relationships? Bad relationships surge to the forefront. Uh, in studies of uh, married couples, for every nasty thing one says to a partner, a minimum of five compliments are required to offset it. <laughs> so uh, bad is way stronger than good. And one of the things that executives do is sometimes they don't pay attention to the bad. Instead, they actually devote time to moral exhortation to people Oof. to do good. Mm -hmm. But when people see bad, for them, it's a signal. Nobody cares. Yeah. And so the question they ask themselves is, why should I care? And therefore, I'm not going to be accountable. Yeah, it's a really, really important lesson, and, I, and it's the kind of thing – I've actually had a couple of conversations with people about that particular principle, and it's something that I think people immediately get, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, but, it, it, but it's something that, to me at least, wasn't as explicit until I read this ter terrific book. Let's um, wrap up with um, – there's so many great lessons for managers uh, inside of organizations about um, – you know, uh, accelerating a accountability and avoiding illusion and patience and incompetence and uh, actually using some of the principles of behavioral economics, system one thinking, system two thinking to scale your things. Um, I actually think that the principles here apply more broadly beyond the large organization. So let me offer up uh, a couple of questions for you guys. So let's say that I'm a, a graphic designer, right? I got a one or two person shop. Is there one thing I can do differently after reading this book? Um. Well, there's a lot of things. One of the first things that would strike me, a graphic designer or any of us, is to start thinking about ways that we're putting excessive cognitive load we can get rid of on ourselves and the people around us. And it's there's so many ways this happens. We do it with our cell phones. We do it by little procedures that are a little bit more complicated than we think. And, and there's so much evidence that, um, that, that when people feel that extra sort of burden and, and even like trying to do things on your cell phone and uh, be in a meeting at the same time that we talked about, um, it turns out that we um, we get dumber um, and we also alienate people socially. There's, there, there's some evidence, by the way, when your cell phone is out at a meeting that you're less persuasive when you make an argument. Interesting. So, but that's a little bit of an aside. But 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 this idea of looking sort of for cognitive load and I'll turn it over to Huggy in a second here. And our big scaling principle for every individual is it actually starts and ends with people, whether you're talking about a, a three-person team or we have some great examples from General Electric, JetBlue, um, giant organizations. Every case of change we see scaling, um, it's essentially an individual who starts where they are with what they have. So I think that applies to all of us. Huggy, you want to jump in? Um, if in the spirit of Dan's question, maybe I could shift to another domain, and let's actually consider teaching to be a domain. Great. What we have can a lot, I of, we have a lot of educators teach? listening to this show. So, so you know, if you're an educator, if you're a teacher or principal, um, what are the, what are the lessons of uh, that you found on scale that applies to our to our schools, to our classrooms? The biggest one for me is. Um, 
Stop the bad before you get to the good. Mm. And let me illustrate it from personal experience. When I teach at the uh, Graduate School of Business here at Stanford, the first thing is you actually want people to be on time. If they're not on time, they get greeted with a question. And pretty soon, everybody is on time. Mm. You tell them, look, no looking at cell phones. I'll give you a five-minute break in the middle. You'll have ample time to look at the cell phone. Um, no use of computers. But the most interesting thing that I find is um, when I go to class, I have 280 students. Basically, I spend time becoming familiar with them. I don't memorize their names, but I'm curious about them. And many of their names and background details stick in my head. And so when I go to class, I ask a student, hey, what do you think? You worked at Eli Lilly. You ought to be able to speak about it. And they look at you with surprise and they realize <laughs> you prepared. And very quickly, they respond with uh, similar effort as well. Um, in, let me give you the last uh, thing about an exam. Uh, when we give exams to our MBA students, they feel that we're making them jump through ridiculous little hoops. And it dawned on me several years ago that the best way to give an exam was to actually get an alum to come and present a problem. So last year, I actually had an alum who came to uh, our class and said, this is the venture I'm seeking to scale. I need help to, I need a scaling model. I need help in hiring, uh, you know, this was actually uh, on the co-worker space business. I need, uh, and she wanted to add uh, the kid care along with that offering. So she had a number of positions and all that she did was she spoke for 20 minutes and I told the students, here are three questions. If you're going to hire these people in 50 words, describe to me the three questions you'd ask them in an interview. How are you going to scale 400 words? And the students spent an entire weekend focusing on that because suddenly it wasn't an exam. Mm -hmm. It was helping a colleague. Yep. And it was actually, they quickly realized, my God, that could be me. Mm -hmm. So you quickly see... The time shifting is another thing that teachers can do. And we talk a lot about time shifting as another kind of influence strategy as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a great example. There's, I have to say, we have examined only a fraction of the ideas and <laughs> insights uh, in this book. Uh, the book, of course, is Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. It deals with this problem of scale. Uh, when I read this book a few months ago, I was really blown away. I think it has the potential to really be a landmark book. Uh, it's such an important issue, and this book, the, 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 the love and attention comes through on the pages. The, the sweat and tears of seven years of effort really comes through here. It's a, it's a terrific book. I encourage everyone to, to pick up a copy, whether you're in an organization, large or small, uh, Huggy and Bob, thanks for being on the program. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, that's it for Office Hours. Thanks for being with us. If you've missed an episode, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But you can listen to previous episodes on iTunes or danpink.com. Until then, I'm Daniel Pink. Thanks for listening.